Let's read the word of God. We're reading from Colossians chapter 2. We're reading from verse 8 down to verse 14. We'll read to verse 15 actually. Colossians 2 verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now this morning, as we continue with our series of expository sermons in the book of Colossians, I've chosen as my text today, Colossians 2 verse 12, and I've entitled this theme, Understanding Our Spiritual Baptism in Christ. Now what I want you to do is, I want you to ask yourself what Colossians 2 12 means. How do you understand it when you read it? Ask yourself, why does the Apostle Paul introduce the word baptism? What is meant by the phrase, buried with him in baptism? Does it mean water baptism? Now, that's very important that you grasp that. How is all this connected to chapter 2, verse 11? Remember our theme then, understanding our spiritual circumcision in Christ. We could even ask this question, who raised who from the dead? Notice the last part of verse 12. It says, who hath raised him from the dead? And you see, I have no doubt. Now listen to me carefully this morning. Colossians chapter 2 verse 12 drags up many, many questions. Now these questions, I believe, must be answered. But in answering every question, I believe the answer to the question must lie in the context, but must be also true to the body of Scripture that has been revealed. The Reverend Peter McIntyre from our Clocker Valley Church sent me a quote earlier this week by a man called E.H. Broadbent. This was a book entitled The Pilgrim Church. And this man was dealing with the subject of Marcionism. Now, Marcion was an old uh, heretic uh, in uh, a former day. And this is what the quote said. Any error may be founded 
on parts of Scripture. The truth alone is based on the whole. You see, Marcion's error were the inevitability result of his accepting only what pleased him in the Bible and rejected what didn't please him. And you see, this approach opened the door to every heresy and every compromise and every apostasy within Christendom. And what was true in Paul's day is true today. You see, in Paul's day, there was men in Colossae who accepted parts of the Scriptures, men who talked about Jesus. They, they preached Christ. Yet if you press them on the question, what makes a Christian a Christian, they added things like, oh, well, you need the mediation of angels. And they said, well, you also need to have a literal physical circumcision in your flesh. And, and then they would have said, we also need special wisdom. And you must be part of our group because only we can impart it to you. And what did it lead to? It led to confusion. More than that, it led to compromise. It led to corruption of the simplicity of the gospel. And that is what Paul is dealing with here in the overall context. He is combating heresy and error. False teachers have come into the church and they're introducing you need Jesus. Great. Yes. Wonderful. You need the mediation of angels. You need literal circumcision. You, you need to have this special wisdom that only we can give you. You see, so whatever Colossians 2.12 means, it has to be true to the whole body of truth in the scriptures. If you remember back a few weeks ago, I, I liken Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 to a kind of a spaghetti junction. In fact, in the introduction, we talked about spaghetti junction. And you think of a junction that's got six entrances in and six exits out. Now, if you're coming to the junction, you're not going to go in at every entrance and come out at every exit. You're going to pick one. So we're not going to cover everything in one sermon connected to Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. But what I'm going to attempt to do this morning, I'm going to attempt to open up verse 12. Because I have to tell you something, and I, I say this very humbly. Um, I have wrestled for three or four weeks in my head with this particular text of Scripture. I'm, I'm not fully convinced in my own mind that I know everything that I should know about this verse in the context of the simplicity of the gospel. Now, why do I say that? I say that for this reason. This verse has given rise to controversy. Do you know that believers have fallen out over this verse? Do you know that churches have split down the middle because of this verse? Well, if he preaches that, I'm out the door. Let's pause for a moment. Remember the Marcion heresy, selecting a part of Scripture. I believe this teaches that. But it was without the rest of the body of Scripture to back it up. That, that's taking a verse out of its context and making it a pretext. And you can get the Bible to teach anything, any part, if it doesn't accord with the rest of Scripture. 
So we're thinking about Colossians 2 verse 12. Now I want you to think of the first thing that came to my mind when was this. The glorious truths that are inferred. Look at the first phrase. Buried with him in baptism. You see, the word buried will pause. Now, the word buried has to include the death of someone. You see, is not the burial proof of death? Is not the burial confirmation of death? We'll move on. Buried with him. Now we'll pause. Who? Who's, who's he thinking about? Who's he talking about? Now there's a simple answer, young people. And the answer is Jesus Christ. Buried with him means buried with Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 8, what's the last word of verse 8? It's Christ. And not after Christ. Christ is the subject. And in verse 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Notice verse 10. And ye are complete in him. And then verse 11, in whom? Still referring to Christ. And then it says in verse 12, buried with him in baptism. Wherein also ye are risen with him. How? Through the, operation, through the faith of the operation of God. Who hath raised him from the dead. Notice the emphasis on him. Who is the him? Well, the simple answer, young people, is this. It is Christ. I would put him in capital letters. The person of Christ is in view. And the Apostle Paul is emphasizing that Jesus Christ is solely sufficient to save because every true Christian is in union with him in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And it's our union with Christ that gives us the life of power and victory. How can we overcome sin? Indwelling sin. It's connected to our spiritual union in Christ. Therefore, we need to recognize our spiritual union in Christ. Remember, we're in a spiritual battle. We're Christian soldiers. We've got a great arch enemy called the devil. Millions of hell. We live in a day of uh, rank heresy, a day of, uh, of rampant apostasy. And we're in the midst of this. And how can we have the victory? How can we know joy and assurance? Well, it's all connected to our union with Christ. You see, the teaching of the gospel is that Christ suffered the horrible death of crucifixion. Christ was buried, remember, in Joseph's tomb of Arimathea. And Christ rose again from the dead bodily. And all that Christ did, he did for our spiritual benefit. Remember, in the cross, he shed his blood and bore the guilt and punishment of our sins of the broken law. And when you, by the grace of God, have embraced Christ, freely offered to you in the gospel, that former guilt-ridden old life, that damnable self, we could talk of, that inbuilt bias to go against God, died with Christ. I, and more so, was buried with Christ. 
And you see, we in Christ are no longer the object of condemnation. We're now a recipient of a full, free, and forever justification. Now, Paul is saying here to the Colossians, you were buried with him. Now, we'll get to the word baptism in a moment. That means if they're buried with him in his burial, by virtue of being in union with Christ, that means by way of inference that you and I died in him. So when Jesus was on the cross, suffering the guilt and punishment of our sins, we were in him. And more than that, when God raised him from the dead, you and I were raised up in him. And when he ascended, we ascended in him. And as he is seated on the throne of God, we are seated in him. You see, by means of his entire work of humiliation, which has to include his birth, his sinless life, his atoning death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, Christ, remember, purchased eternal redemption for his people, including the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we're not only justified, we're not only forgiven, we're not only adopted into the family, but we're also being sanctified. There's a gradual spiritual renewal that is taking place. We're learning to die unto sin, the sins of the flesh. We learn to hate sin, loathe sin, mourn sin. You see, that's a good test. If you call yourself a Christian, then ask yourself, what is my attitude to sin? What is my attitude to my sin? My straying, like Sally the sheep, against God and his law. If we are conscious that we sin against the Lord in thought and word and deed, then we ought to be concerned and troubled about our sin. And remember, if you're born of the Spirit and indwelt by the Spirit and know the gift and fruit of the Spirit, then because the seed of God is within you, you become a new creature. And one of the evidences of being a new creature is you hate the old life and you love the new life in Christ. And there's a hatred for sin and there's a love for righteousness. Remember, Paul said, if any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he's a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new and all things are of God. So in union with Christ, you lived in him, you died in him, and you were buried in him, and you arose in him. You see, the bottom line is, I want you to think of Christ, and I want you to realize and understand that you are in him. Now, isn't that mind-blowing? Isn't that staggering? As I've said, the word buried with him, burial is proof of death. He really died. You've got to think of him in the tomb. Death has come, a loved one has been taken, and that loved one, like Wesley Irvine tomorrow, will be, will be buried in the grave. You see, the burial is a seal and confirmation of death. And in the heart and mind of God, when Jesus Christ was born, lived, died, and was buried and rose again, descended, all that happened to Christ happened to all who are in Christ. That's what we call total identification. Or that's what we call union with Christ. You see, 
God chose a people in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Do you know that God punished his elect in Christ? Paul could say, I am crucified with Christ. When? When Christ was on the cross. When Christ died, we died in him. When Christ experienced the wrath of God, God was also punishing his elect. He was pouring out his wrath upon those who are chosen in Christ. See, Christ was not just our substitute. It's not just that he took my place and died for me. Christ was also our surety, paying the debt to the broken law. And all my sins were dealt with by him. You've got to think of his death on the cross. The Bible says Christ died for our sins. He was not only a substitute in the surety, he was a sacrifice. He was a sin bearer. He was a sin offering. And here's another aspect, an important aspect of his saving work, his burial. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 4, and was buried the third day. The burial is a confirmation and proof of his death. And and then it mentions here that we are alive in him, we're, we're risen with him. Here's the triumph of God's people. Death has been defeated. We have no more fear. You don't have to worry about death if you're lying in your deathbed. Remember the psalmist said, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Not only is he with us, but we are in him. Remember what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 2, for as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that the power of death, that is the devil. Listen to verse 15, Hebrews 2, 15. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And in Christ, you were not only buried, but you're risen. And you left the old life in the tomb. In Christ, you ascended, Ephesians 2 and 6 says, and hath raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Christ, the covenant head of his people, the forerunner has entered into heaven. He's there preparing a place for us. He's there for us. But heaven is familiar to us because we're in him. And therefore we're free to offer praise and offer prayer. We're, 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 we're free then to proclaim the word of God. We're, we're free then because we, we, we have a love for right living. Because we're, we're living before the throne. The question is this this morning. Let me press it home. Are you in him? Remember, apart from him, we're all spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Remember that Christ's resurrection is the basis for our spiritual and physical resurrection one day. Because we're in him, we'll be raised to newness of life. One day in him, we'll have a new body. And remember, only God can raise the dead. And that can be true now. You can be in him now. You can have that assurance. You can have the assurance for a coming day that you're going to be raised up to to glory, to, to meet the Lord in the air, and you'll be forever with the Lord or raised from the tomb. See, we're one with him now. One with him in his life. When he kept the law, we kept it in him. One with him in his death. One with him in his burial. One with him in his resurrection. One with him in his ascension. As I said, that's mind-blowing. 
And that's what that little phrase, buried with him, means. Are you in him? Do you know him? Is he Lord and Savior? Is he your Redeemer this morning? Or are you still without him? Only you can answer the question. Here's this morning um, what we would really call the glorious truths that are unfaired. Notice something else very quickly in the text. The great test that is instrumental. Now, how do we actually come into union with Jesus Christ? How does all these privileges and possessions become ours? How do I know if I'm a partaker of the benefits purchased for me in the life and death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ? Now, there's two answers. We're going to pause. One's wrong and heretical. The other's true and spiritual. I want you to think of the great test that's instrumental. If you look at the text that says, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him. How? So we'll pause. How? Here's the answer. Through the faith of the operation of God. That's the true and scriptural answer. The wrong answer is baptism. Notice the word, we'll go back to this, buried with him in baptism. What does that mean? What does baptism have to do with being buried with Christ, risen with Christ? You see, in the Roman Catholic mindset, baptism has everything to do with being buried and risen with Christ. Now, they're thinking, of course, of water baptism. In the Roman Catholic teaching, there is a, ma a magical efficacy, efficacy in the rite of baptism. Roman Catholicism teaches that the act of baptism saves, that it confers grace on the one who is baptized, regardless of whether faith is present or not. It's called baptismal regeneration. And I want to tell you this morning, the Free Presbyterian Church totally and utterly rejects the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Baptism does not remove original sin. And it doesn't matter if you're a baby at eight days old, or it doesn't matter if you're an adult, having water applied or put into water. There's no such thing as ex opera operato. Now that's a Latin phrase, and that means by virtue of the act. And what Roman Catholicism believes that grace is conferred in the act of baptism because of the power of the church to administer that rite of baptism. By virtue of the action of the priest, grace is conferred. And in the process of the administration of the water, the blood supplied. And then the Holy Spirit enters. That baby or that man or woman's born again. You see, Roman Catholicism today, through the trickery of the Jesuits, they talk about the new birth. You might meet some Roman Catholics and they'll tell you, and I'm not being derogatory here, I'm a born again Catholic. Wonderful. But you've got to ask them, take a step back and ask them, when were you born again? Now that's the key. 
Jesus said, marvel not that I said unto ye, you must be born again. I've experienced a new birth. When? And the born again Catholic, in the vast majority of cases, is going to say, in the waters of baptism. You see, there's an existence on the application of the external rite. And their great trust is in the power of the church, not an actual faith in Christ. But it's not the church that saves. It's Christ. It's not baptism and water that washes away sin. It's the blood. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses away all sin. And you see, if any man comes along, whether he's a Roman Catholic priest or a Protestant minister or pastor that's insisting to become a Christian on an external right being applied, then we have to say that is heretical. If someone comes and says you must be baptized to be in saving union and fellowship with Christ, then that's heretical. And sadly, this teaching is part of the Anglican teaching. It's part of the Lutheran teaching. Christ is the Savior that you need. Now, that's wonderful news. But in order to be a Christian, well, you need to be baptized. Well, that's the same as saying physical circumcision, isn't it? Some so-called Christian church, churches teaches that you can't be saved, legally justified, or born again until you're, you're baptized. So it's really faith plus baptism. Well, you need to have faith. Great. But you also must have baptism. And that's essential for salvation. What about the Old Testament saints? They, they weren't baptized. What about the dying faith? He was, Jesus said, today shall thou be with me in paradise. You see, I'm going to stress this morning this. It's heretical and wrong to say a certain thing must be done if it adds to the finished work of Christ. It implies that what he did in the tree wasn't complete. And in fact, it goes further because it's adding to what he has already done. The external act must be baptized for admission to a life of union with God. It's all a lie. And in fact, one of the proof texts is Acts 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Now, that, that, that's, that's one of those texts that's out of context. And that needs to be studied very carefully. And there is a, an answer, and I haven't time this morning to go into that uh, answer. But, but remember what I said. Whatever you preach or teach must be true to the whole of the Bible. So repentance before God and being baptized cannot mean that without that baptism you cannot be saved or, or legally justified. And I want to stress this morning, and I'm taking time to do this. There is no saving efficacy to the rite of baptism. And I'm not dealing this morning with the whole subject of Christian baptism, but, but it is being inferred here. But there's no saving efficacy to uh, the life of baptism. Now, here's the true answer. Here's the scriptural one. 
How are we brought into union with Christ? Buried with him in baptism. Here's the answer. Through the faith of the operation of God. Faith is the key here. It's faith in Christ. What is saving faith? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. How do I know if I'm in Christ? How do I know I am in union with Christ? The answer is through faith. Forsaking all I take him or forsaking all I trust him. You see, some people asked me in the past, and I have to be careful here of time this morning, how do I know if I'm the elect? How do I know if God has chosen me from before the foundation of the world? I want to tell you that's the wrong question. You shouldn't even be asking that question. Why not? You should be asking this, am I a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I received him as my Lord and Redeemer? Is he my shepherd and bishop? Is he my friend? Have you trusted in Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Don't get bogged. I've known people to end up down in Purdysburg, and other institutions, because they get fixated with whether I'm the elect or not. Now, I believe in the doctrine of election. But you think of an archway. Isn't there two sides to an arch? Here's one side, and you're going to enter in. Whosoever will let him come and take of the water of life freely. And that's tremendous. But when you get in through that one side and come out the other side, what do you look up and you see this truth chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the Lord? You see, you can't be inside first. You'll not know that first until you have exercised faith in Christ. You must enter into Christ. And faith is the key. And this faith is the gift of God. It's planted in you by the operation of God. Ephesians 2 and 8 and 9. For by grace you saved through faith and not none of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's planted in you by the operation of God in the new birth. And that's the order of salvation. The new birth comes first. Resurrection unto life. And it leads to the exercise of true faith. Which is the gift of God. It leads to repentance. And you hear the message of the gospel. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You hear his call, and you come as you are. You hear him saying, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you come to Christ as you are. Think of a chair. You look at the chair. Will that chair hold me up? Well, how will you ever know? You have to eventually come to the place where you lean your whole weight on the chair. You can even lift your legs from the floor and, and put your, 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 your feet on the rail. That's trusting yourself completely to the chair. And when you don't fall off, you don't hurt yourself, make a fool of yourself, then you, you feel very happy and very pleased. You've committed yourself wholly to the chair. Well, young people, that's the same thing in trusting yourself to Christ. And this ability, this enablement, this faith is God's gift. It's not naturally yours to exercise. It's God's gift by his Spirit. And that's the truth of the gospel. You see, sadly today, the simplicity of the gospel has been obscured. And the simplicity of the gospel has been set to the one side because people have been told, hey, you've got to be circumcised in a physical sense. You've got to be baptized. You've got to have holy water sprinkled over you. I want to tell you, you don't. 
It is through faith. It is by the operation of God. And you could have a militant atheist. You could have a, an apathetic agnostic. You could have a sympathetic moral church attendee. And they've all got the same spirit of unbelief. And neither the militant atheist or the sympathetic moral church attendee will not be convinced by power of persuasion and insight that they're spiritually dead, they're spiritually hard, they're spiritually blind. And they will only be, be brought into Christ in union with him by believing in Christ. And the spiritual power is by the operation of God. Isn't this what Paul meant when he said in Philippians, Philippians 3 and verse 10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and being, being made conformable unto his death. The instrument this morning is through faith. The third point that I had is this. The great testimony that is instructive. And he mentions buried with him in baptism. Now, why does he mention baptism? Well, let me say this. Because that baptism is a picture of our salvation. Baptism, therefore, has taken the place of circumcision. Baptism has become the sign and seal that we've been buried with him, that we've been raised with him. It's a sign and seal of our union with Christ. The great testimony that is instructive. Now I want to open this up a wee bit and our time is gone this morning. So I'm going to leave it here. I'm going to park it here. And we'll do a wee review next Lord's Day, just over the points one and two, and then we'll deal with point three because it's so important that you understand why the word baptism is in here and what it actually means. So I, I appeal for patience. Come back next week and we'll, we'll look at this uh, a little further. I do apologize, uh, not preaching the whole sermon, but uh, we have communion afterwards. And if I preach on for another 10 minutes, you're maybe tired already and received enough this morning.